Welcome to the CEO.Digital show. My name's Craig McCartney. And I'm Darcy Thompson-Fields. And this is an open exploration of technologies and trends straight from the C-suite. You'll hear insights that will help you better deliver results for your company and its stakeholders now and in the future. You can find out more and stay up to date at ceo.digital. Today's guest is James Stewart, partner at Public Digital. James is a technology and change specialist, helping leaders develop strategy and skills to transform their organizations. He's also the non-executive director in the UK Parliament, an advisor to numerous startups, and is also a member of the mayor of Hackney's Digital Advisory Council. James was previously the deputy CTO of the UK government, helping found the government digital service and supporting the creation of the UK's National Cybersecurity Centre. He built and led the team operating Gov.UK and represented the government at W3C and on GitHub's Customer Advisory Board. James, welcome to the CEO.Digital show. Thanks. Hi, Craig. I have to admit, after that introduction, I'm keen to unpack some of those milestones in your career. So should we just start there? Can you tell us um, how you became a partner at Public Digital and touching on some of those uh, elements I mentioned in the build-up? So Public Digital was founded a few years ago by some of the same team that set up the government digital service in the UK. We help institutions that matter around the world to transform for what we refer to as the internet era. So that's digital transformation, but where digital transformation often sort of is purely talked about in technology terms, we see it as being much more about how do organizations really thrive in the modern world. So I wasn't one of the founders of it. I was one of the sort of first wave of hires, um, but I'd worked with all of those founders before in the government digital service which I'd helped set up back in 2011, where new government coming in in the UK recognised that it was time to significantly change how government worked with its citizens online, how it provided services, and how it organised itself internally. And we were a unit set up to lead that transformation. And in terms of the current role as partner, what does your day-to-day look like? So I spend probably about 60% of my time working with clients, I work across a portfolio of clients globally. So I'll spend a certain amount of time just checking in with our teams. We have a range of teams working with different clients in different ways, some doing training, some doing assessments, some helping build teams in their client organizations, some coaching senior leaders in those client organizations. And I try to spend a lot of my time just helping those teams focus on the right things and bring different insights to the table. And then I spend a fair bit of time actually with the clients. So having coaching conversations, participating in workshops, doing other things that help them really think about how can they adopt new ways of working? What are the opportunities for them? Where are the challenges? And some of that's about technology, but more of the time it's about how are teams empowered to work? Can they make quick decisions and test things with real users? fast? Is there sufficient focus? And are all the other parts of the organization supporting that? So commonly an organization that's going through this kind of transformation will need to learn how to hire people differently because you're bringing new skills and, and new attributes into your organization that will need to think about how do we train people and how do we communicate what we're doing? 
you need to buy services differently. So kind of every, every little bit of how the organization works needs to change. And, and we're often spending a lot of time helping them see the big picture of that. And then I spend the rest of my time just helping grow public digital. We've been hiring a lot, sort of developing our own structures. We do a lot of our own communicating, sort of writing blog posts and other things. I spend a good chunk of time on that. And you talked about transformation there. Obviously, it's not just about technology, it's about culture. And let's look at the technology element. How has uh, digital transformation evolved over the last few years, especially since you started out? So part of it is it's appeared on everybody's lips. Um, It's gone from being a bit of a niche thing where, you know, you had some of the original dot-com companies and then a new wave of startups emerging and growing and and people spotting that and a few big organizations trying to change to something where everybody recognizes now that to thrive you need to be good at digital but we see really diverging understandings of what that means and in some cases it's it's very much oriented around you know the latest and greatest technology platforms and often seen as something that you buy We'll go and buy digital for our organization. We'll go and buy transformation for our organization. Others are grappling with it in a deeper way and saying, what do the communication tools, the ways of running teams, the ways of getting out and and getting things in front of customers that are now possible mean for how we operate, for what our strategy should be, what our opportunities can be? We're seeing a growing understanding that it's about culture, it's also just about the entire operating environment and operating style of big organisations. You know, being good at technology is a necessary part of that, but it's just a part of it. And it's a sort of foundation that you build your practices on top of. And you talk about accelerated transformation as of late. The the pandemic had obviously a big role to play in that. Good to get your thoughts on, you know, what impact the pandemic had on that transformation from your perspective. And then from your client's perspective, you know, these institutions that matter, as you call it. So we were very fortunate as as Public Digital being a fairly new company that most of our own practices were already pretty well set up for being a global company from day one, being very flexible about where people worked and being a company that communicates a lot which is an essential thing to do. Once people are distributed, you need to be very deliberate about that. So for us, it certainly has meant that the way we build relationships with clients has has shifted. It's gone are the days where it was quite so easy to just jump on a plane and go and see somebody, buy them dinner and get to know them. Now it's a more drawn out process. You have to be a lot more deliberate about it. And and I hope we get back some of that, being able to do it face-to-face, but we've not really gone back to it yet. I think for our clients, we saw a range of challenges and sort of new realizations about themselves. So we do a fair bit of work in healthcare. We do training with boards of NHS trusts and have done a number of projects directly with parts of the NHS in the UK and healthcare providers in other countries. So obviously we saw immense pressure on them. And also I think a a realization that there were things that they could do at pace that perhaps they hadn't expected to be able to do because your whole balance of thinking about risk and reward shifts when you're under those kinds of pressures. Things that were too risky to try in business as usual become necessities when you're under huge pressure. What's appearing with that though, 
is some questions then about what's the new sustainable footing that we want to put things on. We've shifted how we work through a pandemic, you know, particularly pronounced in those healthcare clients, but definitely the case everywhere. Which of those practices do we want to capture? Which do we want to hang on to? Where do we need to work differently? A lot of that's about people. People have been under a lot of individual pressure, a lot of burnout, a lot of, you know, just the emotional challenge of the last couple of years. Organisations are now kind of getting into this. How do we, how do we settle down? How do we give people the chance to adjust and recover? And have you guys, in terms of you, you talk about that deliberate communication with your teams, are you guys like a, a video one all the time organisation, or do you have the option to just dial in? You know, if you're going for a walk or whatever the case is, we're trying quite hard to be balanced in that. So very early on. In some of the longer sessions that we did, we made a point of saying at the start, you know, if you want to turn the video off, do. If you're going to be here for a while and something's in a fairly broadcast mode, definitely turn your video off. You, just your posture will be better if you do that. There's not that kind of clenching up that we all do when we're on video. But also, you know, if you need to wander out and get a drink and do all of that. Quite, I, I don't do this so much myself, but quite a lot of my clients do do the kind of walking meetings thing just being on the phone i think that's been really healthy for some people personally i've done actually quite a lot of cycling meetings when we can meet up with people in person sort of i'm a very keen cyclist so we cycle laps of a park and have a chat so try and really mix things up that is definitely a new way that i have not heard before so <laughs> i was going to say doing a cycling meeting with you know with your microphone might not work out too nicely wind would get in the way pretty quickly <laughs> Yeah, thanks, James. Uh, let's just move on to the next section. I want to talk about experience and how that's you know been defined in this new era of digital. There's a lot more emphasis on bridging the gap between digital and offline. Do you have any insights into how organizations are doing that? That's increasingly where our thinking and our time is being spent. I think we, you asked earlier about how digital transformations changed over time, and I sort of gave you half an answer. Other thing that we're seeing a lot more of, particularly with public sector organisations, but I think this also big customer-facing private sector organisations is the case. There's a recognition that as we get better at the sort of the core of digital and sort of providing the online services and getting the technology under control and learning the the ways of working that that allows that to really get the opportunities of this era we have to work much more multidisciplinary we have to think about all of the channels through which people experience services and provide really joined up services some of my colleagues were very involved in the Universal Credit Service, the Benefits Reform Programme for the UK government, which you know, is politically still kind of controversial, um, particularly the last few weeks as, as the government's been changing the amounts of benefits that people get, but was very, very successful last year at scaling as more people needed its service. So setting aside the way that people are getting the right amount of money, we saw in lots of parts of the world unemployment registration systems collapsing under the weight of people who'd lost their jobs through the pandemic. And Universal Credit in the UK did not have that. And I think the reason for that is that they'd partly got their kind of their online service delivery to a point where scaling and adapting and changing every week 
was natural for those teams. They'd got that agile thing down. But also, they'd not stopped there. They brought people who really understood the job center, frontline, human contact experience into that same service design practice. They brought the people who developed the policy into that same practice and worked as a single team. And so what they thought about was what's the overall outcome that we're trying to achieve for the government and for people who need this service? And then what's the full journey by which people experience it? And then they brought that, okay, what has been good at what people have traditionally thought of as digital mean that we can do to transform all those parts of it? And we're seeing that in other organisations as they're thinking about, say, in a bank, how we actually not just having a very segmented kind of here's the online channel, here's the branch channel. People are thinking about how do we integrate those. But it's actually really exciting to see that some of the government services have been some of the trailblazers in in how to do that and how to really build tightly integrated teams. Is that um, of the success of some of the dot, uh, well, the gov.uk setup, do you think? Yeah, I mean, gov.uk definitely started something um, in the UK government. It showed the power of building an in-house team that really know how to move fast on these things. It shifted how government thought about getting close to its users. It built the practice of user research where you'd really go out and take ideas and early stage prototypes and test them with users, but also understand those users' contexts very deeply and put all of that together in empowered digital teams that could move. What I see having happened in Universal Credit and in some organisations we've worked with in in Latin America and in a number of other places is that they've gone beyond that. Those are really important foundational practices. What we can do now is take that out of the purely online channel, take that away from the purely kind of modern digital skills and think about how those ways of working let us transform the end-to-end service delivery. And then I think my editor asked me to come up with this uh, question for you because we did interview you in a report called Anyway Operations. So now that organizations have moved to a connected office approach, I guess you could say there's also a sort of digital and and offline version of this um, happening. But is there anything that surprised you about that change, you know, from that sort of connected office approach, these hybrid offices and the hybrid way of working? And do you think that shift has been working well? And is there anything that organizations could be doing to improve that? That's a big question, I think, because really that's that's getting into the whole future of work. I think it we're in a, a funny moment with reflecting on that at the moment. So like in 2020, organizations necessarily had to react to the fact that we couldn't gather in offices in the way we had and shift ways of working quite rapidly. And some of them really thrived on that. People, you know, weren't commuting. They got some time back. People were able to really focus on which were the connections within their organization that were really valuable for them, experiment with new tools. And there's been this explosion of not so much new tools, but tools that were beginning to emerge, like the Miros and murals of this world that have just accelerated massively, along with Zoom, obviously. This year, in 2021, it feels like we've started to see a bit of a reaction to that 
And I think some of that is people realizing that being at home all the time isn't so much fun. And some of it is that management styles have to change when you've got a distributed workforce. And some people like that and some people don't. And some people are ready for it and some aren't. I think that it's quite hard to draw out patterns right now because we are in that reactive sort of second wave of reaction. I do suspect that we're going to see this rumbling on for quite a few more years as people hopefully find a balance. And for us as an organisation, we're definitely hitting that the office as a resource kind of mentality that nobody's expected to go there, but some people just like it. Some people need it for certain types of events. It's great to be able to kick off some work as a team in person, even if you never again meet in person. My hunch would be we're going to see a lot more of that. But it does feel like we're in a sort of slightly awkward, turbulent, everybody reacting period. And where? what about you? Is the home office for preferred location? or I really like mixing things up. Throughout my career, I've had a certain amount of, of home working. So in some ways, where I'm at now doesn't feel that different. But there's definitely something about gathering together with a team in person that I've just not felt like I've been able to replicate online. So a few weeks ago, starting a new client engagement, we sort of spent about a week on it. You sort of got to that point where you've absorbed a lot of the complexity that the client has. We got together in a room for about six hours, some chat, some eating and drinking together, and a lot of just getting stuff out of our heads. And we're able to simplify things for ourselves so much that way that I just can't imagine doing another way. There's also that human connection element, isn't there? Because I guess on Zoom and Teams, it's always just straight into the, the business and straight into the, when you're together, there's other things to speak about, not just work. Yeah, it's that. And the fact that you can mix the kind of physical tools and the virtual tools as well. So there were some things where we were in the same room, we still typed into Google Docs. Other times somebody would jump up and grab a pen and write on the whiteboard. And actually that mix of, of physical activities is really helpful for being creative. Yeah, I guess having the freedom just to say something out loud and not thinking, oh, I'm going to interrupt someone, you know, on their microphone is, yeah, something you take for granted. Sorry, I am jumping around a bit here. Yeah? I do want to go back into the gov.uk thing. It's quite a, a big, meaty project, and I'm sure one you're very proud of and, and you know, proud to have your name associated with. So you took over, what is it, 1,800 websites and streamlined them all into one experience, or at least built the, the template or model for that. How did you start with something like that? The origin of the Government Digital Service and Gov.UK was when the new government came in in 2010. They, there was sort of a, there'd been a bit of a generational shift. So the previous government had been around for about 13 years, regardless of what political parties involved. A change after that period of time can stimulate new things and brings a new generation of people in. So you had some politicians and some advisors to them who recognised that you know, the internet was now a firm part of our society and that presented new opportunities and challenges. And they commissioned Martha Lane Fox to write a report, mainly focused on DirectGov, which was the main government website at the time. But Martha sort of took a broader view, said, actually, focusing on one website isn't the right thing. Focusing on the opportunity for government to be digital is the thing. However, websites are really important in that. And after she published her report, a small team of us, there were about a dozen, were brought together to sort of prototype what it might look like to approach 
government website differently. That was really, really important because one of the big obstacles that I see a lot of organisations having is it's always a lack of belief that a different way of doing things is possible. And you just kind of need to do something differently, whatever it's long-term prospects that just show we can work differently. And so that's kind of what we did for about 12 weeks. We demonstrated something that uh, thankfully was popular with uh, the right decision makers and we're tasked with creating the government digital service as a central digital unit and with gov.uk as the new government website and the, the traditional way of doing that i think would have been to go and kind of survey all the existing websites and maybe try and consolidate their content management systems or roll out a new set of templates across them but one of the main things that we'd recognized through the previous piece of work was that the whole landscape of those websites was confusing to citizens. Whether it's you wanted access to a particular service, but actually delivery of that service was spread across multiple government departments, or you wanted to understand government policy on something, but actually six different departments had partial responsibility for that policy, getting to the thing you wanted quickly was really hard. And so what we did was we gathered as much data as we could get our hands on, on what are the hundred biggest needs people have of government. And we started with how can we most simply solve like the 80% of those, so the, the common cases on those and start to build out from there. So we're not going to build based on our existing landscape of websites or organizational architecture. We're going to build based on the user needs we find. And once we've done that, we then looked at how to scale it. And you continue with a certain amount of like what we call the mainstream user needs. We say the central team is going to continue to be responsible for, for solving those and bringing whatever tools we have to bear to doing that. But also, you do need to federate parts of it. So we built a publishing system that lets people in different departments manage so the policy information, the kind of the workings of government information, and some of the really specialist content, say tax manuals that HMRC publish for accountants. They are written by accountants for accountants, and there would be no value in us getting in the middle of those. We just need to join them up with the other bits properly. And, and over time, that's turned into a really substantial publishing operation run centrally by the government digital service, but also a sort of network of people across government who contribute. And with that has come a lot of training because what became really apparent was that working to a content style guide, sort of how are we going to write stuff in really plain English and training people in that was going to be the really crucial thing in making it successful. Any key takeaways from a, a project like that? Any key lessons for someone who's about to dive into, you know, something huge? The place where people often get stuck, I think there are two things. Uh, one is being daunted by the scale of it. You know, a little bit of that's healthy. It, you don't want to be cavalier with the, uh, we're running the government website, but it's really easy because it's not. <laughs> and you make a lot of mistakes if you don't take it seriously. But also it's not a challenge that you solve in one go you find the right place to start. So starting small is absolutely essential, but starting, you know, if it's a service delivery, starting end to end, don't start with just like the application process. Think about how can we do a really thin step through, how are we gonna actually satisfy somebody's needs? 
here and scale out from there. So start small, but start the right way is crucial. The other thing with something of that scale, you need a lot of political backing to do it because we were saying things that individual government departments had been responsible for on the web, they were no longer going to own the whole of that. They were going to depend on us for doing it. And there were some justifiable fears that we are publishing information about floods, we're publishing information about potential natural disasters, all sorts of things. Are you going to be there? Are you going to do that responsibly? And we had to build that confidence. When you talk about that, it becomes common for people to say, well, we can't do it because we don't have enough political backing to do it. But I'd again go back to the belief point that I made earlier that actually you get some of that by starting. So you need enough permission to start something. And then you need to focus your start both on like how can we solve a real problem for users, but also how do we build the confidence that we need that will get us permission to do the next bit. So there's sort of two dimensions to your prioritization there, but it all comes down to getting started. I guess those lessons that you learned during that project held you in good stead for some future ones, uh, ones that you've just been working on. I mean, can we talk about some of those examples? Well, what, what you're allowed to share about them. I know you worked with the New South Wales government and also you worked uh, for Peru's largest conglomerate, Intercorp. Can you tell us a little bit about those, what you did and you know anything that you wanted to share or feel could be useful? I think Intercorp's probably the, the one I can talk about in more detail, even though there's some really exciting stuff in New South Wales we could come back to. Intercorp's fascinating because it's 4% of GDP in Peru. It's huge there. You walk down any street in Lima and you'll see storefronts for their banks and their pharmacies and all of these other things that they run. And yet hardly anybody outside Peru's ever heard of them. We were involved there when their chairman, who had sort of grown this group of businesses from one bank to a kind of portfolio of about 30 different businesses, recognised that the Peruvian society had, had been on quite a journey where it had gone from very politically troubled, certainly in the, the 70s and 80s, to even though you know a lot of turbulence still going on politically, much more stable, emerging middle class and quite a fertile business environment, but still in a position where there wasn't all that much international competition coming in. So there was an interesting moment for them where his businesses had got to a scale where they had a huge impact. They had lots of opportunities ahead of them, but he did a bit of challenge to kind of think about how do we reinvent ourselves before the competition comes and reinvents things for us. So they had set up an innovation lab which was helping the different businesses in the group come up with new new business ideas and some great ideas about things that are really important for their society, like how do we provide financial services to the large proportion of Peru's population that doesn't have a bank account? Because they've got this, still got this huge divide between the kind of urban Lima, increasingly affluent population and the rest of the country. So how can we take some of our services and make them relevant? the rest of the population. Um, so they were doing great work there, but they were struggling with how do we then take those great ideas and embed them in our existing businesses and transform our existing businesses so that they can not throw away the, the great customers and revenue that they had, but embrace these new opportunities. So we got involved partly to provide some technical and delivery experience into those innovation projects. Just like, 
what are the things you need to think about if you're getting ready to scale this? How do you set some good goals around it? What's, what's reasonable to ask of the teams? What skills are you going to need coming up? All of those sorts of just getting ready to grow things. But also to spend a lot of time with the senior leadership in the existing companies, helping them understand how these new teams were working, helping them set the right challenges for those teams. How do you think about the right sort of governance for what's a very different way of working? And also what new skills and ways of working do you need to bring into the core of your leadership team as you go from particularly a an environment where you, know, you run a supermarket and so you buy a big supermarket management system <laughs> from a vendor, they provide it to you and it does the job. Two, one, where suddenly we're selling through loads of channels and we've got delivery going on and we've got um, lots of different types of products. And so we need a much more dynamic approach to our technology. You're going to need some different skills there. So we help them think about how to build those. Sometimes around CTOs um, or, or CDOs, but often also about what are the skills the rest of the executive team need so that you're not putting all of your eggs in that one basket. Sounds like a lot of pressure handling a, a project like that. I mean, how do you handle pressure? So I love working in teams. And I think our best client relationships are the ones where we have a really strong sense of team with the client. And we are drawn to work that we think really matters. And that inevitably brings pressure because you start to really care about the work um, but you share that amongst the team and you you help each other through it you hold each other to account for it of like okay we need to get this done but also like there's a moment to stop there's a moment at least to pause there are other people who are also responsible for this and a lot of our work is really about and this is where we differ from a lot of traditional consultancies is we are very very satisfied if we can walk away from a client knowing that we've helped make their teams stronger we don't want that kind of land and expand kind of relationship but our job is to help them to learn to do things for themselves and so there's also kind of you can take a lot of satisfaction and that helps with pressure getting some satisfaction along the way and some celebration along the way just from seeing the shift in the people you're working with they were asking for my help with that and they're not anymore that's really good. They're now confident enough to deal with that situation themselves. They've learned some skills and I've probably learned a lot back um, from doing it with them. That was just a, a side question. Um, I did want to come back to the differences between public sector and private sector in terms of you know some of those transformation projects. Um, I know you don't just work in the public sector. Are there any similarities between the two and or, or not? And, and what are the, the differences? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of similarities and, and we say sort of we work with institutions that matter and there's something quite deliberate in that language of institutions doesn't just mean public sector. It also means, you know, large corporates. It means, you know, large nonprofits and multilaterals. We do work with the UN and the World Bank and others as well. Almost all of our clients are long established organisations. Generally, they existed before the Internet or at least before the internet was a big part of people's lives. And over that time, every organization naturally accumulates ways of working. 
It accumulates process, it accumulates governance, it accumulates responsibilities, regardless of whether you're public or private sector. Also usually has a lot of people and a lot of internal politics, <laughs> whether or not it's got, you know, external politics attached to it. And so like our speciality is jumping into those sort of complex environments that have built up over years and helping them find the kind of here's the deceptively simple thing that you could get started on that you can then use to to test what other parts of your organization need to change and that applies private sector or public sector see so you then get into like what are the motivations for change and those can obviously be very different between public and private sector though again in both cases we're drawn to organizations that have some sense of, of mission about them so that puts us actually at a moment where the cop 26 summit's going on at the moment a lot of people are talking about their, their sustainability mission and, and it's really encouraging to see like across sectors people stepping up on that I don't know how much they're stepping up. We'll see at the end of the summit. But there, there is this new, I think, sense in a lot of big organisations, public or private sector, that being much clearer about the social value you create is essential. So we, we really try and connect into that. And that motivates us a lot, regardless of sector. Yeah, I mean, thinking about it now, it is a little bit of a silly question because they are, like you say, very, very similar. It's just they're sort of the motives uh, behind, you know, them wanting to change. Talking about sustainability, another curveball for you. Um, it is coming up more and more. But are you, in terms of those transformation projects, are you seeing technology driving any goals around sustainability or maybe pressure on the technology to reduce some of the sustain or sorry improve the sustainability for those organizations at the moment if you're looking at kind of western developed countries there's a lot of talk about that but i'm not seeing it sort of come together very much but as i mentioned we do a fair bit of work with sort of world bank un and others and in africa and southeast asia through those bodies and there this comes to the fore a lot more because all of that work is focused on the sustainable development goals. And so whether it's sustainability in the sense of how can we help communities thrive or sustainability in the sense of how can we get better environmental outcomes, there's a lot more focus in that work on that. And that's sometimes challenging because it's quite easy to fall into sort of Western technocratic ways of doing things, but it's also really really exciting as you think about okay how can we make sure that what we're doing is helping build local skills and it's helping build local supply chains but it's also building transparency into those things and and where does technology play a part in that but also where does helping people be better equipped to have conversations about what they want play a part in that so yeah in that work it's really starting to come to the fore uh, we've got a little publication coming up in a couple of months uh, which will have a sustainability focus uh, we do this periodical called signals uh, and that's the theme of the next edition okay good good timing <laughs> are you working on anything exciting at the moment that you can talk about or um, that you're just you know would like to share yeah working on yeah lots of exciting things one of the things that i think marks us out is we get quite excited about working in places that other people might find a bit boring because we're really interested in this kind of 
the sort of institutional infrastructure that supports society. So recently we've been doing some work with um, Sellafield Limited, the nuclear plant, as they move into their decommissioning phase. And one of the things that I'm finding really interesting there is thinking about timescales. So obviously in the, the digital world, we're used to quite a fast pace of things and the kind of what's going to change next week, what's going to change next year kind of conversations. And they're thinking about, well, we've got nuclear waste. What's going to happen in 30 years? What's going to happen in 70 years beyond that? And if there's a trying to make sure that you capture the real value in that long-term thinking while also injecting some, okay, we can still try some quick things. We, we can still have a, a sort of experimental culture and a culture that really thinks about, okay, we don't have customers there, but there are a lot of really important users who need information and they need safety outcomes and they need other things that technology can help with. I think that that kind of package of, of challenges is fascinating. How? I mean, you guys get some, it looks like some really interesting projects. Is it mainly through word of mouth or is it just because of the, the work you've done previously for you know, big institutions that matter? We've been really lucky for the first few years of the company that like our past work and sort of colleagues who've done a lot at BBC and The Guardian and The Co-op and We've also got personally ran digital government for Argentina and, and sort of this really interesting network within the company, which has brought us a lot of work. We're in the process of getting more proactive about what we do there as we've got some more great case studies to share. But I think we always see our work coming through best when it's in the context of relationships and partnerships. So we're, we're not really looking to be that company that leads with sales and marketing and cold contacts. We want to spread the word about what we do, but we want to build the right relationships with with clients who genuinely want what we offer. Great. Well, thank you so much for all of that information, James. I think um, I'm just looking at the time. I, I think it's time to sort of liven up this podcast with some quick fire, fun questions which uh, don't have a, a bearing on too much, uh, you know, about the future and technology, etc. So one of my favorite ones is what, how would your family describe what you do versus your friends versus your boss? Well, I mean, I think you are the boss, but maybe your, your peers. <laughs> so my parents probably got to a point where they, they understood it when I made websites. <laughs> and so I think there's still quite a lot of that. There's sort of, he makes websites. You know, well, kind of, but more I kind of help other people learn from <laughs> from that. Peers, I think it's, it's quite easy because, because of my technology background to think that I spend a lot of time talking about technology. And actually, I spend most of my time talking about all of the other things around it, not nearly so much about technology. But uh, yeah, I mean, so, so we have a CEO, I guess that's the boss. I think he has a fairly good understanding of what I do. <laughs> Yeah, you would hope so. <laughs> and your family? I think my kids just know I spend an awful lot of time on Zoom. They actually used to really like it when I travelled a lot more because, you know, there were stories and presents. <laughs> okay, and um, what is your guilty technology pleasure? I mean, it's tempting to make a point about, like, I can't tear myself away from my iPhone even though I don't like what Apple are doing with their browsers at the moment. But... I don't know. It's not so much a guilty pleasure as a sort of 
if I had a bit more time, I'd quite like to really resurrect a lot of the old ZX Spectrum games of my youth, which my mum recently found a load of old cassettes with, with games on, which I'd love to get some time to get back into. <laughs> yeah, I think that checks that box there. And um, in terms of, do you go to a lot of these digital slash virtual events? As a guest, do you attend any? I've not been to all that many. To be honest, through the pandemic, I found I was spending so much time in front of a video during the working day. And, you know, the day job actually expanded to take up more time because, you know, that stuff you can do quickly with physical human contact just takes longer. That I didn't really have the energy to do very much more beyond that. But actually, so... This week, there's been a fantastic conference called Forward 50 in Canada, which is focused on digital government. So it dipped into bits of that. And in terms of the sort of family and friends interaction, what's the funnest Zoom experience you've had? I'm guessing you did a few games and quizzes. and. So there have been two things. One is, actually, my kids discovered Kamut quiz app at school and then started doing quizzes for the extended family on some Zoom calls. And there's been a little bit of the, the sort of, it's partly they're growing up and watching them kind of stepping up and doing that stuff for themselves, but uh, in a way that wouldn't have happened previously. And there's actually been a similar, homeschooling was, was challenging for us as it was for everybody, but there was something quite nice about seeing them interact with their peers, which you don't normally get to see. So that's, that's a sort of, I guess, <laughs> voyeuristic almost just watching thing i actually really enjoyed and seeing that and seeing the little jokes they tell each other in the chat on google meet or whatever it is they're doing <laughs> yeah i found that uh, my daughter in reception they send you photos and videos and all of these updates and then obviously when they start year one that's it and then you're like you have no idea and it, it is a very sweet thing to witness okay Great. Well, um, James, thank you so much for your time. I think we covered all of the questions. Um, I will post um, the link to case studies as well into the podcast page. But just to the listeners, thank you so much for listening in. Please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and Google. I think I got them all. So, um, James, thank you again. I'll look out for any content and, and the magazine you were talking about. And great to have you here. Thank you very much. Yeah. Have a good day.